Hello and welcome to another episode of The Neutrinos Are Mutating, the science fiction and science podcast from Manchester Metropolitan University investigating the science fact behind the science fiction. I'm Sam Illingworth. And I'm James Redfern. And in this episode, we're going to be looking at the 2016 film Deadpool, directed by Tim Miller and brought to us by 20th Century Fox and Marvel Entertainment. Mr. Wilson. You've recently been diagnosed with terminal cancer. We can fight this. What if I told you we can cure you and give you abilities most men only dream of? I'd say that you sound like an infomercial, but not a good one, like Slap Chop, more Shake Weighty. If I never see you again, know that I love you. When I'm finished, your mutated cells will heal anything. But you still think we're making you a superhero? We're making you a super slave. James, brief synopsis of this film. Okay, so bear with me because there's a, um, a little bit of info that's actually quite important to what we're about to talk about. So, uh, Wade Wilson is the character, he's the main character played by Ryan Reynolds. Um, and he is a former Special Forces operative. Um, and so, he's obviously just very good at running around, beating people up, very good with a gun. Um, and then one night in a bar, he meets a lady called Vanessa, who um, is played by Marina Baccarin. Is that how we're pronouncing that? Let's say yes. Yeah, let's go with that. Um, and, you know, they hit it off. They're getting on really well. Uh, but then, unfortunately, um, Deadpool... Well, it's not Deadpool at this point. Wade Wilson then develops cancer of the liver, the lung, the prostate, and the brain. So, it obviously, ends up in a very bad way and kind of decides that he doesn't want to drag... Um, Vanessa through the whole process of dying which is inevitably going to come so he just takes off, just leaves um, at, at which point he gets um, recruited by a co- covert organisation which promises to cure him of his cancer and all his problems uh, and during that process they take him to some kind of like underground lair as they always do and uh, he's injected with a mutation activating serum um, and then subjected to torture to activate it, to activate this uh, serum, mutation activating serum, whatever that may be. Um, and basically they starve him of oxygen uh, and that helps accelerate the healing factor of, of whatever is going on. Um, and then that process, however, leaves him really disfigured. He doesn't like it, he doesn't like how he looks, so he gets a mask, gets the Deadpool thing and decides to become a superhero. So essentially, like, he gets cancer, some man turns up and says, oh, don't worry about that, I'll cure you. Um, but you've got to go through lots of pain and take this really random medicine. But it seems to work. So he, he has the ability to regenerate and so becomes really fearless. Um, but is really disfigured. So he doesn't want to go back to Vanessa because he feels like he's not gonna, she's not going to like him. So he kind of goes on a bit of a journey to find the man and get a cure and causes untold destruction along the way. Fantastic. And we're going to be speaking to Dr. James Pritchett, um, who's the incoming new science communication lecturer at Manchester Metropolitan, about the regenerative powers of Deadpool and how you may or may not see this elsewhere in humanity and perhaps the animal kingdom as well. Yeah, fascinating. You can find out more as well as previous episodes at tnampodcast.com.
So we're joined now by Dr. James Pritchett, who is the incoming new science communication lecturer at Manchester Metropolitan University. Hi, Jim. Hi. Good so, <laughs> Jim, your your previous research um, is on cell and tissue culture. Um, is, is yeah, right? and in vivo work as well, but focusing on liver fibrosis and liver regeneration as well. Uh, okay, right. In vivo, what does that mean? Oh, sorry. So that's using animals in our research as models for human disease. Okay. Nice. So like all kinds of animals, like mice? Uh, so or... mice, well, just mice. <laughs> and do, does that stretch to, would it stretch the termination, like the terminology rather, to insects as well and to uh, Well, mosquitoes? yeah, in vivo would cover any organ, any living organism, but legally there's different specifications in the UK about what's covered by our licence. So anything on vertebrates is licensed by the Home Office. But things like fruit fly research is still in vivo, but anyone can do that because nobody cares about fruit flies. So <laughs> people are a little bit more cautious about what you can do with uh, mammals. Isn't that interesting? Like, that's really interesting. Different levels of so there's just no, there's no problem. So, like just cutting them. Yeah, cutting and no one, no one counts how many fruit flies are used or monitors what you do to them, how cruel you are to them. Whereas for the animal work that we do with mammals, with mice, you have to have a license specifically to cover you for what procedure you might be doing, whether that's just a simple injection or some form of surgery. Is it the same with? Ah, but obviously only alive ones. Because I was yeah. thinking, you know, when you're at secondary school and you dissect frogs, they're, so, they're dead, aren't they? So, you just hope so. Yeah. so <laughs> for research or teaching purposes, the animals, if they're uh, mammals, have to be killed by what they call a Schedule One approved method. But once they're dead, obviously anything goes. So as long as someone, so you don't have to be licensed to Schedule One kill, but obviously you have to be trained S up and signed S up. Schedule and, uh, One sorry, kill. That's not a schedule One um, <laughs> sacrifice of animals. <laughs> Sounds like something yeah. I've hit bad. I mean, yeah. It's very kind of um, non-emotional. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. And, and so you're looking specific. You've been looking specifically at liver. Uh, yes. Like the but, degradation of livers. Or? So yeah, looking at um, chronic and acute liver injury. Um, so that's I guess uh, trying to understand how human disease works. So obviously the most common example people think of is alcohol abuse. Over years or decades, people develop chronic liver fibrosis, which eventually changes into cirrhosis. And at that that stage, arguably, it's irreversible. Okay, so this, this ties in really well with the last podcast when we were talking about addiction. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> it's, it's my understanding that it's kind of, it's the, the liver's almost got this um, elastic plastic relationship in that it can stretch so far or be damaged so far, and then it gets to a point yeah, where... so it's rounds of repeated, I guess, it's like picking a scab, so it'll respond quite well to an acute injury, so it's evolved to basically survive... Uh, someone eating something poisonous but if you're carrying on poisoning it day after day year after year for decades you can imagine you end up with a scar for me much the same way as if you pick a scab eventually you're going to end up with a scar on your on your arm for example so it's the same a similar process but due to taking on some kind of poison rather than actually cutting a, a, cutting your skin for example so the evolution of that has that happened because as a civilization we've been drinking alcohol for hundreds of years or is it is it more? Is it longer than that? Is it so, poisons from plants? I, I don't think so. The liver's evolved to help you survive if you do eat some poisonous fruit, for example, or bad meat or something. So if there's some kind of toxin you take on board, it's evolved to help you survive, I guess, so you're old enough to reproduce. And then after that, selection pressure's gone. So if you're surviving till you're kind of 50, 60 and constantly taking alcohol on board or some other poison, that process that will save you from taking on board one batch of poisonous fruit, <laughs> it's going to end up being a bad process if it carries on over decades unchecked and we, we don't understand some people can be a functioning alcoholic for years and their liver won't really show any signs of cirrhosis where somebody else might get to cirrhosis much faster yeah and um, we're trying to ident identify the processes that kind of change that between individuals and also pick up on things we might be able to use as prognostics or diagnostics to work out 
who, which patients might need to be monitored more closely. Yeah. So and, a kind of personalised medicine. Yeah, approach, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, we're going to come on to this a lot. I mean, uh, one of the large topics of this podcast is re is regeneration. So how is it that the liver cells are regenerated to, to heal themselves? So or? that's a really interesting topic. And it, so the liver itself, famously, so even, the well, we think the Greeks had an awareness of the liver being able to regenerate because there's the myth of Prometheus. He was punished by Zeus by having been tied to a rock and having an eagle come and pick at his uh, liver every day on a daily basis. And then overnight, the liver would regenerate and he was there kind of for all eternity, effectively. Awful. awful. <laughs> pretty, yeah, pretty, pretty grim. But so the argument is... You don't do that in your lab, do you? <laughs> 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 definitely not <laughs> so the the way the liver regenerates is almost a compensatory mechanism so if you you can um have a liver resection and the liver will grow back but it doesn't grow so the lobe the lobe of the liver you remove doesn't actually regenerate it doesn't grow back the same way you can imagine a limb growing back it's just the mass of tissue will expand so it's not uh, regenerating the same way it would do during uh, development when you're embryo. It's just actually hepatocytes proliferating, expanding to recover the mass to have a functioning organ again. All right. So it's a compensatory mechanism where the, the number of cells will expand, but you're not actually regenerating exactly the same structure you had there before, but the mass of liver... the function, like the so function the, yes, regenerates as well? Then. Yeah, exactly. But there's a lot of argument uh, in the field about which cells are actually contributing most to that recovery of cell mass. So... In certain contexts, it is the hepatocytes, but in some types of liver injury, there's an argument about whether there's resident progenitor cells in the liver that might uh, be the, <coughs> the the supply chain, if you like, for those new hepatocytes. And then also arguments about how plastic the cell types in liver are, so whether different cell types can differentiate. And what is it about, why is it that, for example, the liver is able to do that? Um, but like the heart can't or a kidney can't. So or... that's kind of the million dollar question, I okay. guess. What yeah. is it about? The, is it because the structures are more, um, I guess, more well developed, more defined in terms of their size? Because you can read the, the liver, the hepatocytes are effectively an epithelium, so they can expand and the structure is complicated, but it's not, um, not got so much um, kind of large architecture to it. So you can imagine the heart's got quite a lot of plumbing in different chambers there. So it's harder, I guess, to make that structure that kind of growth structure again if you injure it and obviously if the heart's not working you die quite rapidly so mm. there's no chance to, to kind of recover from that injury even if there's a mechanism in place there's obviously in evolution there's no way that could ever have become an advantage because if your heart kind of stops working at that level then that's the yeah. end <laughs> <laughs> and so i mean it, that takes us really nicely onto onto deadpool um and obviously <laughs> De deadpool's main characteristic apart from just being hilarious and like the, the, the best the absolute best uh, anti-hero and um, fictional superhero his has this incredible ability to regenerate you know yeah. in in the comic books he's regrown a head before yeah. he's been smashed into dust you know he's been absolutely obliterated and always he's come back what what is it what is the underlying science in inverted <laughs> commas behind his regenerative process I, I, is it something to do with his cancer as well yeah so this is what i couldn't quite get my head around because they talk in the film at least they talk about putting his because he's already got the cancer which is why he goes to seek out this strange new treatment to try and prevent himself from dying of this terminal cancer that's affecting i think his liver his prostate his lung and his brain so he's yeah. in a fairly bad place mm. and they say putting him under stress to mutate or activate mutant cells which I can understand putting someone under stress, I guess, or putting cells under stress might cause them to mutate. But if he's got a tumour, those cells 
presumably have already mutated in some way. So I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I think I think at that point it's saying that most. I think my understanding of that is that every single or a small percentage of the population are already have met. these or, or carry like the mutant gene, yeah. and that once it's put under extreme stress, it will activate. It will activate. Yeah. But I'm not quite sure how that causes cancer. But we'll leave we'll yeah. leave that behind. <laughs> so I guess so. The most common example when people are talking about regeneration is amphibians like salamanders that can regenerate a limb. And what they do is they basically switch on this, the processes that occur during normal development again. So it's like redevelopment. It's not just regeneration. They actually turn on the same gene networks and the so same signaling processes what, to generate a, a new organ again. When you're saying about the liver, so the liver is regenerating, but it's not regrowing like from, from scratch, not, whereas no, they, they are. Yeah, they, it's not, it's not exactly switching on the same processes that occur during development, whereas in a salamander it appears that that process does involve at some point turning on the same genes again that are activated during development. And the really interesting thing is, if you amputate a limb on a salamander, it all, the cells somehow have a, a way of working out whereabouts in that limb they are. So, <laughs> so it'll grow amazing. exactly the right part of that limb it's back. Incredible. So if you chop it off below the shoulder, for example, it'll regrow an entire limb from that point on. But if you chop it off above the wrist, it won't regrow another limb starting from just below the shoulder. It'll grow just what's needed. So somehow that patterning information is inherent in that organ somehow. And um, people if... have done experiments where they can use certain um, uh, signaling uh, ligands or molecules to kind of mess that process up. So you can make it duplicate things from a more proximal area. So if you amputate below the elbow and treat with certain signaling molecules called retinoids, you can make the limb regrow as though it was growing from below the shoulder. Which oh no! Researchers are just horrible so, people. <laughs> so we've been beginning to understand from development as well as from those experiments how limb development and limb regeneration potentially works. Mm. But it's how would you make that work in a human being? Yeah, that's I, what I, was that, I love that thought process. Though, as well. It's just like in order to understand limb uh, redevelopment and limb regrowth, what we really need to do is allow this salamander to regrow its entire arm from the tips of its fingers. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so, fingers are interesting as well because uh, mice and also potentially young humans, children, for example, if you amputate the fingertips by accident in a human, presumably, there is evidence that, oh, there has been documented evidence that they will grow back, and certainly in mice that's really? true. And wow. it's thought that might be to do with signaling molecules in the nail bed, which obviously the nail is continually regrowing. Oh, yeah. So if you just lose the very tip of your finger, it will, in theory, at least in, in juveniles, grow back. And is those, have, those sig have those signalers got anything to do with, like, stem cells, or is it like... So, a so exactly, so there's a... In the nail bed, there is some form of stem cell population, but not um, not pluripotent necessarily. So not a stem cell that could develop into any tissue, but specifically for usually for making more nail. But in that circumstance, there must be a signaling mechanism there that will allow those cells to differentiate into the, all the different tissues mm. you need in that region. But it's the, the time scales involved. So if you think about it, a human limb takes 18 years to get <laughs> to its full yeah. size and maturity. Mm. So in Deadpool, when he's growing his hand back, for example, <laughs> I think it's over a period of days and it starts yeah. out in the movie with a tiny little baby hand. But a couple of days later, he's got a fully adult one. I guess the energy you'd need for that and the amount of cell proliferation involved and all the different processes, having it grow back that rapidly seems a little implausible <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> so and talk about time. So um, going back to the liver, how long does it take? So if you were to like cut a bit out, I mean, are you talking days, months, weeks, hours? Uh, so uh, I've got here in my notes that um, if you remove three quarters of the liver, it can 
the compensatory regeneration can take place over six months, but you can regain normal liver function within two to three weeks. That's oh, wow. that's amazing. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's incredible. That is incredible. Yeah. What 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 I found really interesting is you know the, so these these salamanders, these axolotls, they they can develop these regenerative processes. And if you if you look at Deadpool, actually, the way that he gets that that hand regenerated, it looks quite similar to. The, the videos I've seen online of axolotls yeah. re redeveloping their hands as well. So why is it that we can't just do that? Why can't we just get a, like the genes from a salamander and axolotl, so, inject it into James, <coughs> and then James can... So Come the interesting thing is that the genes are conserved because that gene signaling network is present in humans during development. It's just the genes are turned off once your organ, once the limbs right. matured. So the question is, how would you reactivate them in a controlled manner to not end up with... A horrible growth where you don't want it or a tumor for example and it's how how do you basically recapitulate that process in a controlled manner in a, in a timely fashion when you need it to happen without actually bleeding out first <laughs> as well because i think okay. it's probably also worth noting then so you're talking about regenerating cells and and trying to control them but that's the problem with cancer isn't it so cancer is an uncontrolled exactly proliferation of cells so i suppose there's kind of a a very fine line. So I think from my understanding, the evidence is it's not something that evolution has allowed the salamander to gain. It's something that evolution has meant that we've lost because of whatever pressures oh. yeah. we've had during our evolution from way back without millions of years ago. It's basically we've evolved to survive a, an acute injury such as a major kind of trauma to a, to a limb. It's basically a way of stopping us bleeding out and closing the wound as quickly as possible. But once that process has happened, how would you actually kind of switch on the processes you, you require to actually have a new limb grow back from that scarred area. <laughs> and crazy. again, it's probably an issue of time scale, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Because... So it would take, so that the actual wound closure in humans is a lot, lot slower than it is in a salamander, for example. They, the, the rate that they can heal that wound is phenomenally, phenomenally fast. And then as soon as they've closed it, uh, closed off the wound so they don't bleed out, they begin to form this blastula, it's called, hmm. which is thought to be the, the, the cells that actually differentiate into the new limb. And it appears to be a process of de-differentiation. So differentiated cells near the site of the injury uh, become de-differentiated. They're plastic enough to be able to become stem cells, if you want to call them that, and then basically form a new organ. Whereas wow. in humans, we always think about resident stem cells. So how would you harness stem cells resident in the bone or the muscle to then form new muscle or new bone, which is a slightly different idea than having differentiated cells become plastic and de-differentiate to be able to grow a new organ. Incredible. That yeah. is that is amazing. I, I hate the fact that there's we were we were we had the capability. I know, yeah, we lost it. <laughs> but in my well, head, that, yeah, this is like bit. I, know, this, this I is guess about. that's probably the wrong way of putting it. Not, we, it's not that we had it. It's just that it's evolved so that we we don't maintain that ability. So like, it's I'm, not that there were ever humans kind of a thousand years ago that could do it. <laughs> it's and, obviously way back in evolution. It's something that's been lost. And arguably, you know, the biological differences between animals and humans is probably too great. To be able to so it's even between mammals and amphibians, I'd imagine. So I think amongst vertebrates, it's only the salamanders that can actually do that that limb regeneration trick. Obviously, insects and other organisms do have similar abilities, but I think I'm right in saying amongst vertebrates, it's only the salamanders that can actually do that. Wow. <laughs> and so in terms, I mean, you know, re this regeneration of, of, of limbs and the regrowing of things is something that's quite you know, very a lot of money is getting put into this. A lot of yeah, research. Yeah, so there's and there's so the thing that's beginning to be understood now. So there's a massive interest in stem cells, and how you could perhaps use those in therapies, as particularly in liver as well. So using some form of stem cell to help uh, treat people with either fibrosis or cirrhosis, because transplanted organs are in short supply. So 
if there was a way of uh, treating people with a, a stem cell from their own circulation, for example, that would be a really amazing therapy. But also for treating things like traumatic injuries, where things like if you have a, a fracture of bone, for example, where there's a large gap between the, the ends of the bone, trying to get that closure to take place can be tricky. But there's a lot of research where it's uh, been more and more understood that you need to have the the proteins, the, like the extracellular matrix there mm. present to support the growth of whatever stem cell therapy you might be using to help treat that bone trauma, for example, and also support the uh, the healing or regeneration of the tissues around that. Because if you have a trauma that severe to the bone, presumably there's going to be damage to the muscle and the surrounding wow. tissues as well. So it's marrying the two ideas together. You don't only need the, the right population of stem cells for each of the different tissues. You need the the protein matrix there to support the growth of the right kind of cells. And what, I mean, what fascinates me as well is the fact that there's all is how actually connected all different areas of science are. So you, you touched on there that you know um, we're going to be needing even more donors as we as we go through. <laughs> did you read the article recently about driverless cars? So driverless cars, which we've talked about on this podcast before, when they come into act, are obviously going to reduce the number of automobile accidents. That's what they think. <laughs> no, can't, can't, can't see where this honestly, is going. and so they, they've done projected figures, and the majority of organs from organ transplants come from car accidents. From car accidents. Yeah. So there's an argument to be made that with less car accidents, there's going to be not enough donors available so this so idea to be regenerated yeah <laughs> but i guess that's why cell therapies will become more and more of a, a kind of viable option but it's the question of how how do you source that as a treatment and how do you fund it because obviously it's not something that one drug company necessarily is going to be able to put a patent on <laughs> and then have it on a shelf and, and like basically make it make millions out of because it's going to be for each individual but <laughs> you think in in the film then the way the way that it um it shows the regeneration um, is, is quite well done in terms of... Um, from what I can remember, that there's that one shot where he's got a tiny little, almost like a baby hand. Yeah. Kind of, and that, I guess, would be a, a part of the step along the way. So the question would be what what the patterning signals in, a, in human um, development. Obviously, when you're an embryo, the limb is a lot, lot smaller in size, mm -hmm. physical size, than it is in an adult. So how would you translate between the two? Are those cues for organizing the tissue dependent on the size of the of the limb when it's actually developing so would it develop straight away into adult size and lay down the tissue in an adult uh, format so to speak or would it yeah. first would be it like or would it, it be would like it? in deadpool where it's almost kind of budding out at, at the size of that. it you've then got 18 years with a baby hand <laughs> exactly so the, it's just the timing would be strange and the, just the physical size of these things incredible it would be though to watch your hand grow back like, yeah. you know just day on day it'd like. be surely it'd be agony as well though wouldn't it like because you'd be like you know like when you get growing pains or whatever uh, i guess yeah <laughs> it's all fairly I, I'm assuming, I'm assuming none of us have experienced regrowing a hand in <laughs> no, <laughs> so you'd almost Sadly imagine not. it might be more plausible that you could grow organs back in it outside of the body yeah. and then transplant them back in yeah. rather than having them grow on yourself on your person and find some way to but accelerate that, that growth yeah, yeah for me at least it's easy to imagine doing that with internal organs you don't normally see i don't yeah. know why that's easier to imagine it is to imagine kind of a lab full of arms growing no <laughs> <laughs> all right well thanks so much for joining us jim really appreciate well, thank it you. Cheers. thank you cheers This podcast is supported by Digital Innovation and the Faculty of Science and Engineering at Manchester Metropolitan University. That was really interesting talking to Jim about 
the growth or the regrowth of human tissue, human organs, yeah. the liver. And it's incredible. I think so many times you're on this podcast now, I've thought, I've, we finished interviewing people, I think, I wish I lived 100 years in the future when all this is going to... Yeah, when I'm sure we'll have much more problems with humanity, but at least you'd assume some of these kinds of things will be worked out by then. And it's, it's worth mentioning as well, the film is the film is a lot of fun, oh, it's isn't fantastic. it? It is, really it's, it. It's very much an adult film. It's yeah. absolutely well, I didn't know that before plus. I watched it. And like, within like the first couple of minutes, he's swearing and it's... <laughs> You know, there's a lot of um, like sexual reference and all kinds of it's... more than just sexual reference. I, yeah. would, I would say yeah. as well. And he, uh, you know, he break. He's very famous for breaking the fourth wall, yep. and he does that in the comic books as well. And what's really interesting, I think, about the film is that Deadpool and well, the character of Wade Wayne appears in the X Men Origins film Wolverine. Because um, he hints a... at Wolverine. Yeah, because in, in the film Deadpool, he's always like taking the mick out of Wolverine. But he, he, yeah. this and character, the X-Men. he goes to the house. Exactly. He? They're, all, they're all absent for some reason. Um, and you know, in this, in the original X Men Origins film, he Ryan Reynolds plays this Wayne Wade character. And prior to the the the, the cancer and the genetic mutation, and then he kind of becomes Deadpool, but this like really awful version without the suit and his mouth's sewn up and everything and you know part of the greatness of deadpool is how much he talks you know yeah, yeah. the merc with the mouth so actually as a result of how bad that why was why would they do that why would they sew his mouth i have no idea but apparently ryan reynolds was so disgusted by this they were like really apologetic that he actually helped to drive the deadpool movie nice to come through and you know it was really successful and there's another one on the way isn't there as well another one on the way and it'll be I just think he's such a great anti-hero, and oh, a lot, you know, and a lot of them. I I personally find Wolverine a bit boring, to be honest, and just he's a bit ugh, monosyllabic, isn't he? And yeah, he's a bit too good. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he's just a bit. Uh, yeah, but you know, Deadpool's awesome. So I think as well the 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 way that the regenerative um, processes are controlled seems relatively realistic, and you know, this idea that if this axolotl can regrow a spine. It can regrow the brain. It can be crushed. Things. You know, that, that is what we see in Deadpool as well. So with that in mind, what do you think? Good good film, bad film, good science, oh, bad science? Great film. And I think a, a lot of people agree with that. It was a very big film last year. It's crazy saying 2016 is last year. But, you know, it was a big, big box, box office hit. Um, so yeah, it was a good film, very enjoyable. And I think thinking about the science, obviously speaking to Jim now, we're probably not quite there for us as humans, but there's definitely... You know, it's happening in the biology of the world. There are animals out there um, and there's a lot of research going on. So it's not something that's like completely implausible, as a lot of X-Men are. Do you know, I mean? you yeah. know, some of them are a bit too far out of there, whereas this seems like just out of grasp, maybe a couple of years down the line. So maybe um, great film informed science? Yes, Would that be fair? that's a good one. Yeah. yeah, let's go with that one. Okay, so great film informed science. Fantastic. So you've been listening to The Neutrinos Are Mutating. I'm Sam Illingworth. And I'm James Redfern. Thank you. Goodbye.